So I've avoided talking about this this whole time, and frankly would like to continue doing so, but it is relevant for the construction of this film, so... <sighs> Let's talk about Lasseter. Briefly. Briefly. <sighs> Alright. Lasseter was attached to this film. No, it wasn't attached alone. But it was him and some dude, I didn't even write down his name, who were both directing, and then Rashida Jones and Will McCormick, who were both writing... And they sat down, started hammering out the story, started hammering out things. And there were some usual delays, you know, usual stuff. The kind of things you've probably heard me say 20 times or so by now. And then in about mid-2017, some odd things started happening. So Lassiter suddenly was like, you know what, I just I just can't do this. I'm, I'm too busy. I have all of my other duties as the... Uh, the head of Disney and the head of the, the animation department, and I've got all these other things to cover. I just can't be involved in the project anymore for some extremely mysterious reason. Right about now is also when Rashida Jones and Will McCormick walked away from the project for creative differences. This is also historically when some of the first allegations of... Um, let's call it sexual impropriety, I think is the best way, based on what is described, started surfacing with regards to Lasseter and his approach to the workplace. Now, this is different from a full-on, you know, uh, Weinstein, Harvey Weinstein, which is way, way worse than what we're talking about here. And I just want to make that distinction, but it's still exceptionally unacceptable, because, duh... So these allegations are probably why he ended up bowing out of the project and probably why he lost his writing staff. It's worth noting that Rashida was one of the women who actually was, or I shouldn't say women, I don't know their gender. Rashida was one of the people, the article I read didn't actually mention the gender, uh, was one of the people who leveled such allegations at Lassiter. And many more of these allegations came up, and then 2018 kind of rolled out round, and then Lassiter was fired, and then, you know, by the end of 2018, he was completely gone from the company. Would later go on to work at DreamWorks for an extremely brief period of time before he decided to go make his own animation studio, which still hasn't put anything out. So that's thoroughly unpleasant to see someone in a position of power abuse their position like that, and apparently that is a rather common thing in Hollywood. Why? I, I mean, okay... I said I'd talk about this. I just want to mention one thing briefly. You may remember, I've actually talked about this a few times in my show. It's come up on the Deep Space Nine stuff. It's come up on, uh, when it comes to uh, Iron Man 2, this came up. There's this weird tendency in Hollywood to not talk about things, to have this sort of gentleman's agreement to just not go over it, to not disclose publicly why things happen behind the scenes. You know, it's it's our business, let us deal with it. it. You know, that kind of attitude. And that's been prevalent in Hollywood for longer than I've been alive. And that kind of attitude, well, there's a reason it exists. And there is a, a legitimate reason, I should say. And that legitimate reason is public uh, public perspective on a work can damage the actual inevitable work. Star Wars A Solo Story is probably one of the most perfect examples of that. Good Dinosaur is another one. I've already so there's two movies I've covered where public acknowledgement and understanding of the bad troubled production led to worse sales. Right? I mean, sure. So I kind of get that. I still disagree with it because that's the only legitimate reason I could come up with for that. 
uh, other than just simple privacy, I suppose. that That's valid. But the problem is simple privacy doesn't cover it, and, well, when you have a standard policy of don't talk about it, crap like this can happen and can be gotten away with for years. Uh, there's, there's actually something called the Harvey Weinstein effect, which I, posits as a, as a psychological theory that once that one big case broke, it became okay, you know, culturally acceptable to start talking about this sort of thing, which even still, as of the, this recording, is still only beginning to seep into Hollywood. This, and even that has its own problems, because then we have the possibilities of using these kind of accusations as a weapon to try and hurt someone and hurt their career, even if there's no truth behind those allegations. And so you kind of see how this is all just a giant mess, right? That, I mean, I guess there's no real solving the mess, but it probably didn't help to have this whole don't talk about it attitude for decades upon decades. Anyways. Moving on. <laughs> Point being, Lassiter, by virtue of being a creep, effectively torpedoed his own career and, and cost himself his, sle- his sought slot and seat, both the slot in Toy Story 4 and his seat at the biggest animation studio on the frickin' planet in the history of the ever-ever. So good job, buddy. I sure hope it was worth it. Idiot. That then leads me, of course, to now what? Now, it's not exactly an unknown within, within the regards of Pixar for them to have a troubled production where they have to torpedo a script. This wasn't as bad as Good Dinosaur. They weren't actually in production. They were still storyboarding and scripting and still figuring out casting. And then this happens. However, it is worth noting that by every account I've read, the amount of the original script that was thrown out the window when the new team took over is well over half. Probably more than that. It's entirely possible what we're looking at is effectively a new script that is only borrowing character names or bits and pieces of individual ideas from previous stories. (sighs) Cool. Um, Now... This also ran into an interesting little side problem here. First of all, uh, Don Ridley died. Okay, hang on. Well, I guess we'll just talk about Don Ridley died. He was the voice of Mr. Potato Head. That sucks. Nothing nothing new to add to that. That just sucks. But because the, 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 the production of this film was delayed so much, he didn't actually get to be involved in the process. What ended up happening was his family reached out to the studio and insisted that they find some way to to make him involved somehow. And so you notice Mr. Potato Head has almost a total lack of presence in this film, in contrast to the first three where he was arguably one of the main characters, and certainly one of the characters which had the most, among the most dialogue. Like if you were to list it, you know, there's Woody and Buzz, and then Mr. Potato Head would probably be somewhere in the top five after that. He has almost no presence here because... All the lines here are from previous lines that have been recorded over the last few years. Now, was this done so the family would get money from the film? Was this done so that they wanted him to, to fill out his one final journey? You, you pick on that one. I don't know. I, I have no idea of the motivations involved. It is interesting to note, though, that while most of the Pixar, excuse me, most of the Toy Story films are in many ways ensemble pieces, this is Woody's story through and through. And that's appropriate, because it's probably Woody's last story through and through. There's a reasonably good chance we will not get Woody going forward after this. We might get a buzz thing. (laughs) 
We might get a thing for the rest of the toys. We might follow some other journey within the Toy Story element, but I'm pretty sure Woody's story is actually done. Then again, I said that back in Toy Story 3, so what the hell do I know? The other issue they were running into, like I said, they this is funny to me. With all of these problems and the behind-the-scenes issues I just mentioned, they were like, you know what, we need more time. We don't, we're not crunching. We're not going to rush the movie. We're going to give it its time to breathe, give it the extra year, which means Incredibles 2, you need to crunch. Get that movie out right now. It's funny how simultaneously both how right and how wrong they get this. Anyways, whatever. Point being, they gave it the extra year, which it certainly needed, and worked the way and workshopped through it. And what we have is Toy Story 4. Now, I saw this in the theaters with 3rd. This is one of my stream discussion ones. Probably the worst post-stream or post uh, post-movie stream discussion I've ever done. Because while there are topics in this movie, and we will discuss them in this rumination, it's mostly a comedy, and so mostly it was just me remembering humorous scenes with viewers and us laughing at them. And there's that's neat and all, but that's not much of a discussion, is it? I'm going to apologize if I laughed during this particular rumination because, oh my God, some of these jokes. Anyways, <clears throat> so the film opens up with $200 million budget and a $1.07 billion return. So yeah, I don't think they're crying over that extra year. The, the film opens with uh, a crisis of the toys being caught out in the rain. And they're like, oh my gosh. Now this is a nice, you know, reasonably well done scene. Good stuff here. Good stuff. Um, can I just gush about that rain? Oh my god, I know I've been talking about this since frickin' Finding Nemo. Actually, arguably, no, Cars. Sorry. I've been talking about this since Cars, and it's just been this recurring element that the terrain, the environmental design, is so mind-blowingly, jaw-droppingly good, it is actually getting to the point where I don't know how to describe it anymore. This is insanely good-looking. Actually managing that kind of rain effect, and the, the the rain itself, the sheen it puts, the way it affects the lighting, the nature of how it hits the ground, the nature of how it moves on the ground, the nature of how it moves other things on the ground. Oh my god. Absolutely brilliant, incredible technological prowess here. So, the suddenness of change. Sometimes things happen and you just don't really have a chance to react to it. So that's neat. There's a, you notice Woody almost went with Bo Peep, just was really tempted. But then Andy came out and he's like, no, no, I'm Andy's, you know, that that's my kid. Andy's, I'm, I'm Andy's toy. And as Bo Peep drives off and he's lying in the rain, there's just this subtle sigh as he stares. And then Andy notices him and he goes back to toy mode. Now... Right off the bat, they start with the big theme of this one. But I, I'm going to kind of build up to that later. But it is interesting how they hit that running right out of the gate. So we see a quick montage of the events of two, the events of three, or I guess the late two, and then the events of three, leading into giving Woody to Bonnie. This then leads to Bonnie completely neglecting Woody. <laughs> I'm only even commenting on this, because it's one of the more common things I hear people say about this film. Oh, come on! After all that crap, she doesn't even care about Woody? Especially if, if you remember in Toy Story 3, which I just watched a couple days ago, there's this bit where, you know, Andy was not going to give Woody to her. It's like, no, no, he's not supposed to be in here. And Bonnie was like, well, but, but, Mr. Cowboy, 
And remember, she'd already had fun playing with him. So naturally, she immediately abandons him. I suppose immediately is a bit too strong of a word. But that is the very strong emphasis that's being put in this film. That Woody is a closet toy. You know, just thrown over into the closet and left on the shelf. You know, he's been shelved, etc., etc. I know, I know. Kids are kids. Still. So, um... It's, uh... Hmm... This this film is by far the one that most strongly touches on the theme of parenthood. It's something that's been present to some extent or another in all the Toy Story films, but this one isn't even subtle about it. But it also does it... I don't know how to describe it. Again, anyone out there who is a, a caretaker or has been a caretaker, has been a parent, knows exactly what this feels like because there's a unique selflessness to the way Woody acts in the first chunk of the film. He's in, in previous things, he would be bothered. Like, again, he's matured. Remember, we talked about that in Toy Story 3. In previous films, like one or two, he would be like, oh, my God, how dare they put me in here? I need to get back out there and get to play. And here, he's only thinking about her. And he finds out about her first day at kindergarten. And everyone's like, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. But Woody has been there before. He actually mentions his experience with kindergarten before, which makes sense. He's from the frickin' 50s. We've discussed this before. Another little tidbit of there. And so he insists he needs to be there to watch her and take care of her, to, to, to keep an eye on her. It's not, And you'll notice that she doesn't give a damn about him and doesn't play with him, and, and in fact has the worst possible reaction to him. Total ambivalence. I'll actually talk about that more later, too. But that is, in my opinion, worse than if she actively disliked him. The fact that she simply doesn't acknowledge that he exists. I actually know what that feels like. That's happened to me once with my niece. Just the once. It has, it's never repeated. You know, I go over to visit, and she rushes up and glomps me the first time she sees me. But there was this one time where I had I had a thing I was dealing with, and I couldn't make it to an event on time. And she... I'm actually tearing up just a little bit thinking about it, because it is hurt like hell. She didn't notice I wasn't there. That ambivalence hurts much more, doesn't it? But Woody at no point stops trying to be her parent. Her, you know, trying to take care of her, trying to be there for her. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, but I just wanted to mention that because the first part of the film really hammers that this is not what... This is not some kind of clinging to the past thing. Despite the fact that there's a tidbit where uh, Bo Peep actually accuses him of that outright, I don't believe that for a second. There's just too much on display that this is being done out of a genuine love and care for another person and not for selfish reasons. This is what he has left to do. This is his final purpose, is to take care of this person. That's his life. Let's freaking do it, right? Anyways. So, Woody goes in and acts like a parent. <laughs> you know, here's some supplies to make something. Can I also say, how many of you remember your experience with your first day of kindergarten? I would imagine most people don't. It was kind of young. I actually do. Now, my experience was actually really similar to this. I know this is going to sound weird because I've talked so many times about how I was a very outgoing kid, but I actually had to work into that. I didn't actually fully work into that until probably about, I'd say about third grade was when I finally managed to... to be comfortable enough with myself to be the kid who would walk up to strangers and be like, hi. Before that, I was the kid who would sit there in the corner and say nothing. 
because I was just, it was just this constant terror thing of, oh my God, and who's that person? And what are they doing over there? And, and there's just this thing. And the way they show this is, oh, so perfect. Oh my God. Plus the story, plus the gameplay. There's this bit where she's going through and the camera bounces back and forth between two types of angles. One is a really big close-up on her to show all the level of her emotions and her body language. And the other is nice big wide shots to show what she's seeing, which is all the other kids who are just comfortable and relaxed and talking and playing with each other while they totally ignore her. Brilliant stuff. And then she goes and she finds a seat at the very far end of the table all by herself. And the asshole kid comes over. He gets smacked. And, um, <clears throat> what? Then, then Woody is like, here's the supplies. You know, imagine, reframe this a little bit in your head. Imagine for a moment that the kid's parents were there. And Bonnie is sitting all over by herself, alone and shy. And so one of her parents walks over, her dad in this case, you know, to, to go with the Woody parallel, walks over and is like, hmm, don't you want to sit with the other kids? No, I'm okay over here. Okay. Then the dad walks over, grabs some of the supplies, and just kind of puts them there for Bonnie to play. He says, here, got you a couple things. You can make whatever you want. And then goes back to sitting, standing with the other parents on the on the wall, which is where the parents are standing. It was, isn't that how that went for everyone else? Like the first day of school, the parents would come in and they'd be over there just kind of just as a just-in-case sort of a thing. Is that just me? I mean, this is the 80s I'm talking about here, so I have no idea if they do that anymore. So you can kind of see how it continues to 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 have that particular beat. And then she she's adorable. I finished kindergarten. Oh, oh kiddo, if only. <laughs> so the toy rules get bent a little bit here. Forky is something that she built and played with and therefore ha now has the essence, spirit, magic, whatever it is of a toy. You know, honestly, I'm kind of willing to go with that. But, man, does it raise questions. <laughs> As Trixie says, it, I, I have all the questions. Oh, my gosh. It also kind of makes you wonder a little bit, because he has this fixation with trash. Now, later on, he actually explains this in character reasonably well. He has a, uh, a, a, fi a familiarity with trash and a fixation on trash because of how he perceives that. That is what he thinks of as his comfortable place, his safe space, right? So that makes a degree of sense. This then helps him to understand other concepts as well, as Woody teaches him like you would a parent teaching a child. But it doesn't really explain why he is so insistent on rushing to the trash early on, unless it's just a silly gag. But this film would never do a silly gag at the expense of story. Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> so, Woody... Uh, this also, I may, you may or may not have heard me give the speech about why it is, my theory, as to why it is Buzz, of all toys, continues to follow the toy rules despite not realizing he's a toy. And as I said, it's kind of a reflex thing, automatic thing. You, know, you don't think about breathing. You have to actually put thought and effort into not breathing, right? I think this applies similarly with Forky, who consistently continues to do the do the dead stick thing every time the, the the you know Bonnie or the parents are actually interacting with him, as if it was just a normal automatic thing for him to do, even though he has no possible understanding of that and doesn't even think of himself as a toy. This would also be considered to be proof that he is in fact a toy. 
I'd say this is stretching it a bit, but actually I don't think it's stretching it that much. It just really does raise a lot of questions. Like, where is this coming from would be the most automatic one. Like, where where is this essence, this soul of toy being generated, and who is deciding how what, what it goes to and how, and just stuff like that. Anyways, so we then have a small but important point. She is totally and consistently ignoring Woody, to the point where she doesn't even notice his presence. He continues to be a parent. And Buzz, there's this whole montage of this. I guess I already talked about this. Sorry. This is when I wrote down my notes about this. Because this happens consistently as Woody sacrifices constantly to try and keep Forky with Bonnie to make sure Bonnie is still happy and taken care of at great sacrifice and cost to himself with absolutely no acknowledgement. Also, Buzz is an idiot in this film for some reason. Where does that come from? It's it's probably my second biggest complaint about the whole film. Buzz just suddenly devolves into someone who is arguably stupider than he was in the first film. I don't get where this is coming from. Anyways. So, um, they go out the back. He gives a whole speech. I wish I'd written down the whole speech, because the whole thing is worth mentioning. So here's my truncated version of the speech here. Watching them grow up and becoming a full person... And then they leave. They go and do things you'll never see. And, and don't get me wrong, it feels good, but you still feel good about it. But then you feel useless, like your purpose is fulfilled. And then this leads to Forky relating to it. Oh, so you feel like trash. Yeah. Bonnie is your trash. Yeah. No, wait, what? But whoever wrote that has had children who have moved out. It's a strange and very unique sensation, and it's it. I, I don't know how to explain it. I'm sure most people who know that sensation just look at it and be like, yep, <laughs> immediate cognition, right? It, it sometimes is described as empty nest syndrome. In some cases, it could be expressed as a midlife crisis. But either way, he very accurately describes the parenthood theme and what it's like, you know, letting go of your kids. This lead introduces us to Gabby Gabby. She starts off as kind of an inverse Lotso. See, Lotso started off as this warm, loving, hugging, you know, I'm a hugger. And he was all friendly and affable. She starts off really creepy, like just straight out of the bat. Hello. Oh my, you have a voice box. Come with my incredibly creepy ventriloquist dolls, please. Okay, that's terrifying. Creepy vibes, creepy vibes. This then leads to them escaping, getting to the uh, park. And the park is very, very briefly shown to be similar to the play school concept. They don't have a kid. Instead, they have a bunch of kids they can play with regularly, you know, because the kids come to the public park and there's just public toys there. So, okay, yep, that's kind of cool. I'm with that. I already kind of discussed that topic back in Toy Story 3, so I don't feel the need to rehash it. But, I, and we all saw this coming. We all knew Bo Peep was going to be in this, ignoring the fact that she was all over the trailers and the posters. The fact is, the movie advertises it very well within the narrative. But Bo Peep shows up. I love how they are both immobilized when they get their reunion. And it's a good reunion. They're both nice. Both nice. Everything's cool. I don't feel bad about Winter, uh, the Winter G.I. Joe wannabe. Uh, Combat Carl, that was it. High five! No. He deserved that high five. 
The film represents two perspectives here. Both of them are the perspectives of adults. On the one hand, the responsibility of a parent, which effectively means being tied down. On the other hand, the freedom of having your own life, of being able to do your own thing and what you want to do with your life. What I really like about this is most fiction, when it does this dichotomy, does it not only so overtly it's almost cartoonish, but also doesn't really portray... It almost always slants one side or the other. You should be responsible, or you should be your own person, right? I've seen this dichotomy shown constantly throughout fiction, in in shows and games, books, movies, theater... What I love about how they show it here is both sides are given a fair shake, and most importantly, both sides are shown to be in a positive light. Uh, Bo Peep is obviously legitimately happy with her life of being able to do what she wants, and how she wants to, and just having that kind of freedom to engage in hobbies or interests or whatever, because she doesn't have a kid tying her down. Woody absolutely loves taking care of Bonnie, even though... She has completely neglected him at this point. He still obviously cares about her enough to be invested enough to consider this a fulfilling and enriching experience. (laughs) Right? There's some good stuff going on here on both sides. And the film will continue to show both of these things as we go throughout it. For the most part, the film has been showing Woody's perspective up till now. With Bo Peep entering the narrative, it starts to shift to her perspective predominantly. So, real quick, there's this really, really tiny toy, uh, Giggles. I, I don't remember what it's called. My niece actually has some of those things. They're these, they're really small. They're like this big. And they open up and there's a little playset thing and there's like these really, really, really tiny toys in there. Holy crap, those have got to be a, a safety hazard from hell, but you know, she's old enough for that kind of thing now. <laughs> Why is that a thing? Why are there super dinky tiny toys? Why, whatever, whatever. <clears throat> Why do they change math? So, This then leads to our first real subversion with Gabby. Because she's creepy and horrifying, and she's touching herself up while we hear Forky going, Yeah! Yeah! And the scene is framed, both in camera and in tone and in sound design, as if the the villain is is getting their pedicure or, or sharpening their fangs or whatever, doing some kind of cosmetic thing while some horribly evil act is going on, like while someone's being tortured nearby, Right? I mean, you've seen that before. But then she turns around and Forky's actually being fixed. Forky's fine. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, no problem. This is probably our second real sign of what's going on with Gabby. But our first... I'm sorry, sorry, I said that wrong. Our second sign. But our first real sign of what's going on with Gabby. This then leads to the ideas of upkeep. If you think about it, an old toy could be upkept more or less infinitely, as long as you're... You know, keeping up with parts and supplies and paint and cleaning and all that fun stuff. But uh, we also see how Gabby kind of gets characterization with Forky. By virtue of Forky's sheer innocence, she can then play off of someone. And that's important because Gabby herself is also actually quite innocent. Um, I almost want to use the word naive, since she literally lacks experience. And we find out about her deep and burning, strong... Burning. No, that's right. That's right. Deep, strong, and burning desire. Well, to be a mother. Let's just keep the parallel going here. She wants to have a kid. She wants that connection, that 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 deep bond that Woody has, and that has been shown in previous films and is the first perspective I mentioned earlier. 
and she wants it specifically with harmony because harmony is so perfect and amazing and it's wonderful but i'm broken i, I can't go and get her attention while i'm still broken we'll come back to that this then leads to key and peel all right i'll talk more about them in just a second so let's just move on from that this is a good time to mention the good dinosaur problem, which is just starting to become a thing in these films. The terrain looks photorealistic in many cases. Never mind the inside, where you could actually picture this being an actual camera moving through a dusty back shelf area in an actual antique store. And then they have the cat, which is very close to being a photorealistic cat. Now, I decided to do a little bit digging because I kept wondering, why do they keep pushing this photorealistic stuff? And it just sort of clicked with me as I was staring at that cat. It's like, oh, it's for the live-action remakes. So I did a little digging, and while I wasn't able to find anything concrete, I'm pretty sure that's why they keep pushing the photorealistic CGI. It was so they could do the live-action remakes of Aladdin and Lion King and Beauty and the Beast and all that fun stuff. And those films have been making stupid amounts of money, so investment earned, I suppose. For the record, I haven't seen any of them. I don't have any particular interest, but so I, I can't judge them. It's just, I have a feeling that was the, the, uh, the drive, the executive drive, if you will, to keep pushing the tech forward with regards to photorealistic stuff. And I keep emphasizing that because, well... The rest of the film isn't, or rather, that's not even true. The toys and the environment both work perfectly. For God's sakes, in several cases, you can see the imperfect dimples on the plastic mold that is, or that, that was Woody's face. You can see it. It's, it's insane, the level of detail. That looks like a plastic doll, which looks real, alongside a real backdrop. The scenes with the toys look like they could be actually happening. Then the people show up, and... There's the good dinosaur problem, because the people don't look photorealistic. They, they're still more of the realistic style. I've talked about that before, the contrast between like Inside Out and Incredibles. But they don't look photorealistic. They look cartoony. And it's jarring. And the more I see it, the more it keeps jumping out at me. Please tell me I'm not the only person who keeps noticing this. I'm going to have to pay attention during Onward, especially, because I know, you know, Onward has the, the, the magical-looking people, but I don't remember what they did with the terrain in Onward, so that'll be interesting. <sighs> Anyways. So the cat, good dinosaur, everything's cool. The dust areas, And like any good D&D campaign, one player screws everything up for everyone, and the whole thing goes to pot very quickly. Uh, this... The, I said I'd talk about Key and Peel in a second. All right, we need to get the key for her. Okay, well, what are we going to do? I got a plan. Do, 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 do. Oh, hello. <laughs> key and Peel are one of those 50 percenters for me. Now, if you don't know what I mean by that, um, there's quite a few humor groups or humor shows or humor styles or whatever that 50% of the time I'm just like, okay. And the other 50% of the time, it is very funny to me. When Key and Peele make me laugh, they have me howling. And there are two scenes in this film where I was just dying watching it. I, I, as I said, I was, seeing this, I was seeing this in the theater for the first time. And I remember my seats. Uh, I, we were on the far left back. 
And that was a conceit because of certain things. I don't want to get into it right now because of whole reserve seating. But the point is, we're way over there. Which meant I had the chair I was in and then the the aisle next to me. That's important because I literally was laughing so hard I had to brace myself on the aisle <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm laughing because I'm buckled over that far. Now, as usual, it's kind of my job to try and dissect the humor, but this is an easy one to describe. This is timing humor. There's also another bit of humor here, but it's primarily timing. It's about da 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 Oh, what's that? Wah! That kind of humor. The other thing, though, is the implication that they are narrating all this to them as they go. So we cut to the woman. Da, 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 da. Are we going somewhere with this? Hang on, hang on. We're almost done. Da, 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 da. So we get the idea that as this, we are seeing the literal scene, they're describing it. Now, this is actually a specific type of joke. Uh, this is something that South Park pulls all the time, which, funnily enough, South Park is another 50%er for me. The joke is the person is either describing something or imagining something or playing something like, like they've grabbed a toy and they're like, meow, meow. And that's what's actually happening. But because animation or CGI or video games or whatever, you know, the realm of fiction can show, instead they actually show what's happening. Toy Story's actually already pulled this trick back in the intro of Toy Story 3, if you remember, where they actually showed the big, you know, showdown with the, the railroad and all that. Now, that joke is, that's it by itself. But in order to turn it into a joke, you have to insert timing. What you have to do is you have to show it as this big dramatic thing. It has to be very impacting. Either, oh my god, someone's dying horribly, or you're my one true love. Or, you know, and then the dinosaur started destroying the city. And you have to cut immediately from the big moment, the high tempo moment, straight down in pacing down to what's actually happening, which is... I will destroy you, blah, blah, blah. And that's that approach to humor. So they've got the two approaches, both of which rely on timing and both of which nail beautifully. I completely lost it when, when they're, they're there and, and she, she's lying in the bed and then the camera just tilts up as it shows the two of them looming over her. Sorry. <laughs> I told you I laugh. I told you I laugh. Oh, my God. Okay. Ah, uh, Okay. So this is when Boo's, Boo's perspective really comes into the forefront. Because, now this is actually subtle in its own way. All of these issues are because of how tied down Woody is. Well, I have to go get Forky because Bonnie needs Forky. I need to do this. I, I can't go out drinking tonight, guys. I can't go to the football game. I can't go hang out at the movie. I can't go have a nice restaurant. I have to take care of my kid. You see it? The specifics of the circumstances are sufficiently divested from the idea that the analogy is more of a metaphoric one than a literal one, which is good, by the way. But the concept is still there. I am tied down because I have to take care of my kid, right? So, Bo is, of course, shown in opposition to that, which leads us to counter Reeves as the Canadian Duke, of course. And then, you know, how'd you get the key? <laughs> Just drops right in front of him. Uh, <clears throat> this is when we have the big conflict between Bo and Woody and the two ideologies. What I find interesting about this scene is both of them are completely wrong, not in their ideology, not in their perspective, but in what they say to each other. She insists that he needs Bonnie, that this is all about him, and this is a completely selfish cause. But we've already seen that's not true. 
This is being done out of a genuine care, uh, care and selflessness. This is him feeling responsible for his child. He also accuses her of being disloyal, of not understanding that kind of concept, except we've already seen that she was that kind of person to, I can't remember her name, Andy's sister. And, well, let's be blunt, to him, to Woody. She has done all of this and all of these shenanigans and all these adventures and gone to a place she hates to fight an opponent she dislikes, all because she was loyal to him. Both of them say things that are completely untrue to each other in their anger, and isn't that appropriate? This then leads to a very interesting scene. Because there are three separate issues that arise from not talking. Woody doesn't talk to Gabby. Buzz doesn't talk to Woody. Bo doesn't talk to Woody. Something a trend here. Gabby... There's some good camera stuff in this. Gabby talks to Woody, and Woody's like, ah, and he's got the pencil in it. But she decides, rather than trying to strong-arm him or steal it or whatever, which is what she's been doing up until now... She decides to just talk to him, just to his face. Now, you could argue, why didn't she do this before? That's valid. I'm not going to argue against it. I'm not going to try and say Gabby is a good person. But to call her evil is inaccurate. She is someone who is desperate. Someone who very much wants to fix something that's broken about herself. How many of us can relate to that? And in her desperation to have a better life and to be a better person... She she jumps the gun. She rushes after him. It's only after, not when she's cornered, not when he comes back, not when he doesn't have his posse. It is only when she understands who Woody is because Forky shared all this stuff. And so she, now knowing the kind of person Woody is, decides to simply reach out to him. And it works because she is genuinely reaching out to him about this. Notice that as she's doing this, she and the ventriloquist dummies, which are still terrifying, start out in the shadows, but as she's talking, she literally slowly walks into the light of the window. So she successfully talks him into this. And she's so thankful. She's so happy. This part of me that has been so broken and so mis misled that has prevented me from having my life for so long is finally fixed. <sighs> and this leads to the best scene in the whole film because Gabby has been wanting this for how long and she gets her chance and it's finally there and the kid Harmony has taken her and nah. Oh, that hurt. That hurt. It's that indifference, that ambivalence, that not even acknowledging you're there, positive or negative. So many of us have things. It's, it's so, oh God, it's such a beautiful scene. So many of us have things that we would love to fix about ourselves, that we try to fix about ourselves. And in many cases, we do. The idea and vivid showcasing of the fact that one fix will not magically fix everything, will not just somehow improve your life, will not always fix everything about us. Right? They might be thinking, God, that's horrible. Why even bother fixing yourself? You'll notice the film goes out of its way to show that that fix, her new box, does help. Not only does it lead her to a better life, it helps that little girl who's lost at the, at the, uh, the carnival later. 
forgive me for skipping ahead here, but this, this, these scenes kind of run into each other, so forgive me. Because this section of the film is brilliant. This is the other reason why she is the inverse of Lotso. She starts off being someone who looks like she's terrifying and evil, but she's not. And she ends up being not only an ally, but someone who gets a better life for herself in the process. Unlike Lotso, who was just so despicably evil that I've, you know, it's, it's hard to equate another villain in the Pixar series who was as bad as him. I only came up with two. This is then immediately shown by Bonnie finding the backpack, looking in there, looking straight at Woody, and then seeing Forky, and totally ignoring Woody. Here's where the complexity of the themes really start to come into play. Because Bonnie did need Woody, even though she didn't acknowledge him or recognize him or anything. The indifference was still there. Because he was still helping her indirectly. Because Woody was able to couch and take care of Forky and explain things to Forky, Forky can now be there for her. Thus, Woody has done his job as a toy, as a parent. He has done his bid. And now someone else is going to, 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 to be her toy going forwards. Someone else is going to take care of her going forwards. Bonnie will be okay, as Buzz says. She literally doesn't need Woody anymore. But not in a bad way. Instead, in a you-did-it way. You succeeded. Because it is entirely feasible that if Woody had not done what he does in this film and had not helped to teach and guide Forky, then Bonnie would not be okay, at least in the short term. But he did his job, and she is going to be okay. <sighs> this leads to Woody reaching out to Gabby, who is not a villain. You'll notice, by the way, I keep pointing these out as we go through these Pixar films. This is a film with no villain. And it works quite well for it. It has a fake-out villain, but it does not have a true one. And... That's acceptable, because this is a film that is probably one of the more adult and mature of the films we've covered so far on the Pixar series. The nuance of the topics it goes into is not insubstantial. This is about what's okay and what's not, and what there's nothing wrong with feeling good or bad about being on one side or the other with regards to the parenthood concept. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with Woody wanting to have a different life, wanting to do other things and to go on to different concepts and topics and to just live his own life. Because he did it. He was a parent. His life is not over now that the kid has left the nest. And there's nothing wrong with someone wanting that kid. We see this with the next Gabby scene. This is the Pixar tier scene for me, by the way. There's that young girl... And she's in a, a fear paralysis. You know what that's like, I'm sure. No, just me. Okay, I've I've been fear paralyzed before. It's when you, it's when you can't. You just can't. And so you just stand there and you just sob because you're so terrified and so scared and you don't know what's going on. You don't know how to do it. I was almost kidnapped when I was like that once. No joke. I asked my mom about this. It was in a mall, and uh, there was this dude who was trying to kidnap me, pretty much right in front of my mom. It didn't work out well for him. But I was so scared of what was going on, I was just completely paralyzed. And that didn't help, because then people thought that she was the one kidnapping me, not him, and that took some time to sort out. But obviously, as soon as they talked to me, it's like, yeah, that's my mother, and I have no idea who that is, and that sorted that out. But I know what that feels like. 
I know what that moment feels like. It, it, it's not exclusive to children either. And as an adult, it's entirely reasonable to have fear paralysis like that. Now, what's important about fear paralysis is something that knocks you out of it, gets you to act. And so Gabby, Gabby goes down there and she, the girl notices her. And that's, that provides the impetus, that provides the, the point where she grabs and like, okay, okay. And because the girl now has to take care of the doll, she finds the courage to push herself out of that paralysis and to go ask a security for, you know, help. Hey, I'm lost. And the security guard is just, oh, no, I got you. I got you immediately. And can I just say praise for that? In total contrast to the asshole who is running the toy, the, the shoot game, where you, where you shoot the target and you get a toy, the security guard actually gives a damn and immediately is like, don't worry, we're going to find your parents. It's going to be okay. I got you, okay? Good stuff. Good good little moments. A lot of good little moments. Pixar tears. Now, I love this film, if it's not obvious. But... The RV scene is 100% unnecessary and could be completely ejected and you would not only lose nothing, but my opinion of the film would actually go up. The RV stuff is there to provide an artificial ticking clock. We need to get back to the, the, the RV so we can get back home. If we don't get there in time, we'll be lost forever. Okay, that's the ticking clock. Cool. Many problems with this. First of all, this, these, this series has always kind of bent disbelief a little bit. But the idea that they could completely hijack, effectively, the RV and force it back is nonsense, even by this series of standards. I could forgive that if they did decent stuff with it, which they don't, which leads me to the next point. The ticking clock itself is unnecessary. There's no need for that kind of artificial drama here. The mere nature of what's going on is drama in and of itself. These are big, important, powerful character moments. And a final farewell to Woody and to the rest of the group. Because this is a b- the big goodbye. They treat it as such in every way. Big, dramatic, wonderful goodbyes do not gel with, Oh my gosh, we've got to go. We've only got ten seconds left. In fact, it actually irritates the piss out of me when they try to have the big goodbye when they only have ten seconds left. Especially since what usually happens in fiction, fiction is it's like... We're going to take this long, slow, careful moment to have this emotional thing. And then run, 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 run to get out just in time. And they just get out in the nick of time, which would have been fine if they hadn't taken their sweet time saying goodbye. You get the point. But the other thing, though, even ignoring the obvious literal statements, because everything I've talked about so far has been on the literal side of things, even from a thematic or storytelling perspective, it doesn't fit. It's intended to be funny. I don't think it is. But... Even if it was funny, it still doesn't fit with the events of the outro and the finale. The finale is a big emotional farewell moment, like Toy Story 3 was. It's, it's the same concept. It is intended to be a decisive conclusion to what's happening between these characters and a true sea change in their dynamic with each other. This is intended from the beginning, actually. In fact, there were something like seven or eight different endings that were tossed around and ultimately rejected because it felt like none of them were sufficiently changey enough, which was the desired intent. There's no need to have this big, dramatic, ticking clock, weird, slapstick humor section in the middle of that kind of a moment. It actually interrupts the otherwise excellent scenes and pacing and storytelling. Complaining aside... We then see, you know, the end. The, the status quo changes. Things are over. They say goodbye. Probably our, their final goodbye, if we're being honest with ourselves. 
and they go home, and Woody stays with Bo Peep. They get to have their kid, they get to have their life, neither is wrong. Then we get the mid-credits scene. Okay, first of all, I absolutely, I, I lost it again, laughing here. Yeah, I was dying, oh my god. Oh, they slowly get bigger, and then the lasers come out of their eyes. And, remember what I told you earlier, that type of joke? You then cut immediately from that to the description of it, where they're actually acting it out. Yeah. But what I love even more is, first of all, screw that asshole. But second of all... He's, you know, he's there, he's like, oh, I'm just a dummy who's doing my job, and I'm totally blasé about everything, and I don't care about the fact that kids just want to have a toy. Screw him, I'm just here to rip money out of people with an unfair game because I'm a dick. I might be projecting a little bit, but that is everything that his attitude portrays. I mean, he flat out steals a doll to add to his wall, for God's sakes. Anyways. So instead, the toys do this dedicated arranged coordination where a kid comes up, gets a shot, succeeds, sorry, succeeds, and gets a toy. And they free every single one of those toys from what is effectively imprisonment. All those toys get kids. All those to kids get toys. Win, win, win. Love it. The only one who loses is the jackass. And screw him. I said it before. I like this film. It actually, you know, it, it holds up very well and also not as well with analysis mode on because there are some parts that are just glaring. But this is still an excellent film. This was still a, a worthwhile successor to Toy Story 3. I said before, you know, it's rare that something definitively ends and then they somehow make a sequel and it works. It'll be interesting to see if they ever do a Toy Story 5. In some ways, I hope they don't because the odds of, of them pulling this trick again are even lower than they were this time around. But we'll see, won't we? Either way, I hope you have enjoyed. See you next time.